We've been studying Isaiah 40 leading up to Christmas. Today in our fourth installment we come to verses 18 to 26. We'll finish it next week on a Christmas day. So let me read this passage. Isaiah 40, 18 to 26. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now the larger section of Isaiah that we've been in, inside of Isaiah 40 has been about how big the Lord is. But remember that Isaiah here isn't just theologizing about God and his greatness. This is a Jesus prophecy. Isaiah has announced the future coming of the Lord and now he's talking about what this promised coming Lord is like. Last week in Isaiah 40, chapter, I mean 40, verse 12, we talked about how this coming Lord is far bigger than the creation itself, holding all the waters of the earth in his hand and measuring the heavens with his yardstick, scooping up all the dust of the earth in a cup and weighing the mountains and hills on a scale. And then in 40, 15 to 17, Isaiah compares the Lord to the nations of the earth, saying that in comparison, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, dust on the scales, fine dust, and finally, like nothing. And now in today's section, 18 to 26, Isaiah continues to talk about who the coming Lord is and how big he is. But in order to do so, he invites us to search for something or someone who we can compare with him. He asks the question at the beginning and at the end. In verse 18, Isaiah asks, 
To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare to him? And then at the end in 25, God himself asks, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him? And in the rest of the passage, the Lord God is compared to three things which loom large in the eyes of the hearers. Number one, in verses 18 to 20, he's compared to idols. In verse, in number two, is verse 22 to 24, he is compared to the inhabitants of the earth, including princes and rulers. Thirdly, in verse 25 and 26, he is compared to the stars of the heavens. So let's take a walking tour through Isaiah 40, 18 to 26. Begins with this question. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? This question gets to the heart of the human problem. Instead of accepting God as God and treating him as God, mankind has replaced the creator God with created things. We've fired him and hired another in his place. And when, God, and when Isaiah asks, to whom will you compare God? He's really asking, are you really going to put something else in God's place? Who could you ever find to replace him? And every time we look somewhere else for our satisfaction, and every time we feel like there's something on earth we just can't live without, every time something besides Christ is the driving force in our lives, this is exactly what we're doing. We're looking to someone or something else to take God's place in our hearts. It may be something as good or as wholesome as a spouse or a newborn child. But still, it is a false God. And it's so foolish. It's foolish because there's nothing that's big enough to replace him. After asking this question, Isaiah refers to the practice of having an idol built by a craftsman so that you can worship it, which was common in that context and is it's still in many places in the world today. And he does this to show what a ridiculous thing it is for people to worship idols instead of worshiping God. So in verse 19 and 20, an idol, a craftsman casts it, And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. So that's if you're rich. And then for he who is too impoverished for an offering to to, uh, have that kind of an idol, he chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Make sure he's got a good stand so that this idol will not fall over. There's no conclusion that's explicitly stated here in this verse. There's no lesson that's drawn for us. Because that is obvious. Idolatry is empty and ridiculous. Shall the God who single-handedly made the world be represented by a thing some craftsman makes from the stuff of the earth 
which then can't even stand up by itself? We also know that the point here is about how worthless and absurd idolatry is because the same point is made explicit numerous times in the next few chapters of Isaiah. In chapter 41, 6 and 7, 44, 9 to 20, 46, 5 to 7. Very similar passages, but they go on to talk about the futility of idolatry. Then Isaiah moves on to ask more questions in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Again, there's no explicit statement of what Isaiah is referring to her to here. But it is so obvious that it goes without saying. What's so obvious from Isaiah's perspective is that God is God. All-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, sovereign, and holy. And Isaiah is saying, you're missing this most important thing. It's staring you right in the face. Don't you see it? We have the expression in the English language, the elephant in the room. It refers to something which is too big to miss. Everybody knows it's there, but yet no one wants to deal with it or face it or address it. That's what Isaiah is saying about God. He is the elephant in the room, but no one wants to deal with it. Don't you see it? Isaiah says. No one wants to deal with him. So they act like he's not even there. Which is laughable. Because he's the elephant in the room. And then Isaiah goes on to describe how, who this God is and how big he is. In verse 22 to 24. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them away like stubble. God sits enthroned above the earth. He is not part of it. From his vantage point, the people of earth, with all their colossal egos, are as small as grasshoppers. Even those at the top of the pecking order, he brings to nothing. He blows on them and they are gone. We see this manifested in the Christmas story. And it must be, because when Mary was told about bearing Jesus, she recognized the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise in the coming of Jesus. She said in her Magnificat, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones in Luke 1.51. And last week we saw one little example of this, how God thwarted the malicious plans of Herod, to kill the baby Jesus. But there are many other ways. 
We can see the promise of Isaiah fulfilled in the coming of Christ. One way in particular I'd like to talk about today, and that is regarding Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was by far the most powerful person on earth at the time Jesus was born. It's hard to exaggerate what an enormous figure he was. He is considered one of history's most influential men and most effective leaders. Our month of August was named after him. Last week, we talked about how God used him, turned him into his servant by using him to get Mary to Bethlehem so Jesus could be born at the place Micah 5.2 said he'd be born. But there's so much more than that. Caesar Augustus being the first Roman emperor, basically the king of the world, whose empire stretched from England to, let's see, what's I knew, England to Russia and from Asia to North Africa. He was the first Roman emperor and the first to attribute deity to himself and demand worship from his people. And yet God turned Augustine and the other Roman rulers into his servants to prepare the world for the coming of his son. Under the leadership of Caesar Augustus, the Roman Empire enjoyed 200 years of peace and prosperity. Something that the world rarely sees, along with political unity, And even though there was plenty of brutality and oppression, there was also peace and law and order. So much so that there's a name for it in history, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Because of this, the early Christians were able to travel safely anywhere in the world, in the empire, to bring the gospel. And for hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, The Romans had been building strong stone highways which traveled out from Rome to every part of the Roman Empire which then enabled the gospel to be carried to every corner of the Roman world with relative ease. And there are many other ways that God has used Roman rulers I mean, but used rulers to prepare the world. But I'm talking about specifically Caesar Augustus this morning. When Jesus was about 18 years old, Caesar Augustus died. Rumors claimed that his wife had poisoned him. But one thing we know is that whatever happened, God blew on him, he withered, and the tempest carried him off like stubble, just as it says in verse 24. Augustus was a particularly impressive grasshopper but Jesus was on a whole different level he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made Jesus created Augustus Caesar Jesus sustained Augustus Caesar. Jesus gave Augustus Caesar the success that he enjoyed. Jesus used Augustus Caesar for his own good purposes. And then Jesus ended Augustus Caesar. 
Isaiah continues by comparing the Lord to the stars of heaven in verse 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Not only are idols ludicrous replacements for God, Not only are the earth's people like grasshoppers to him, and its rulers like nothing, but even the stars of heaven are nothing more than his works of art and his servants. He created them. He holds them in existence. This is even more amazing to us today than it was in the day of Isaiah, for we know a lot more about how big stars are and how many there are and how far away they are than was known at the time. But the stars know their master. He calls one to do it. He calls one to do what he wants them to do, and it willingly obeys. And we see this in the Christmas story, don't we? The Lord called a great star to rise in the west to mark his birth and to lead the Magi to his side. Now, there's our tour of Isaiah 40, 18 to 26. But let's look now at three things that I think we need to take to heart in this passage. The first is the folly of idolatry in verses 19 and 20. You know, sometimes we think that we ask too much of God. We ask for more and more things, more and more comforts. But in one sense, the opposite is true. We are too easily satisfied. We're satisfied with too little. And that's the problem with idolatry. The worst thing about having a false god is that you miss out on the true god. Idolatry is being satisfied with too little. It's like preferring pig slop to find food. Now, as sinful people, all of us have things about God which make us feel uncomfortable. The fact is, there's a very willing counterfeiter who's ready to help one and all to fashion a custom-ordered idol which includes things we really want and leaves out things we find undesirable. But of course, the minute we begin to adjust God to make him like we want him to be, we begin to unmoor ourselves from the true God and worship an empty, useless, phony idol. What good is it to pray if no one is actually there for you to speak to? Do you think God listens when we refuse to pray to him and instead pray to a false god? Maybe it makes people feel a little better to pray. But that's what I'm talking about when I say we settle for far too little. One of the precious things about knowing the true God 
is that we can cry out to him in times of trouble and know that he hears us and cares about us and has the power to intervene, always acting for our best. But instead, many settle for feeling a little better because they offered a prayer to some imagined God. That's a mighty poor exchange. And that's the problem with idolatry. It's empty. There's nothing there. You're seeking refuge from the storm in a house made of tissue paper. Something that has no life can't give us life. When we look to idols to give us what only God can give us, to be blunt, it is the epitome of stupidity. But the fact is, my idols, the things I yearn for and strive after, are just as ridiculous as the idols that we might giggle at for more primitive type peoples. My idols are just as worthy of being mocked as the carved images someone worships in Africa. The living God, on the other hand, who has revealed himself in many places and in many ways, most fully in his son Jesus Christ, is wise and engaged and active and purposeful. And he's not only alive, he's the source of all life. John 1.4 says about him, about Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, as Tracy read this morning. He also said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10.10. He even said, I am the life. In John 14.6. The Christian faith is not wishful thinking to make us feel better as we go through life. The Apostle John said, if the Christian faith is not true, then we of all men are most to be pitied. But it is true. We have a wonderful God and he loves us and has committed himself to our welfare. And he has earned our trust by the gift of his son. Even if we suffer, he is with us and he has a purpose for our suffering. And he is carrying us through it. And soon he will deliver us from it once and for all. It's the epitome of foolishness for us to look for another. You know, when a woman has a tyrant for a husband, a man who belittles her and pushes her around and verbally or physically assaults her, it's understandable if she longs for someone else. But a woman with a wonderful, loving husband, it just doesn't make sense for her to look elsewhere. And so it is with us. We have Jesus. We are blessed with the best. How can we be dissatisfied? How can we have a wandering eye that looks around for something else to satisfy us? One of the most common idols that people have is the approval of other people. And here I move to the second 
thing we need to take heart take to heart here and this is the the fear of men the the uh, desire the idol of approval of of the approval of men when we seek the approval of other people we are doing what verse 22 says is seeking the approval of grasshoppers when people are blind to God when they have no eyes to see him it seems like other people are the big thing and we, when we take God out of the picture of our view of the world it seems like people are the big thing Ed Welch a close associate of Paul David Tripp that we've been listening to in the adult Sunday school class wrote a book entitled, entitled When People Are Big and God is Small it's a great book on this subject we fear men's disapproval and we long for human approval and for many this is what they live for this is what they think they need to be happy but how absurd it is to think that people who are here one day and gone the next who know so little and who are so lacking in perspective and wisdom are big and the one who spoke the universe into existence with the word of his mouth and the one who knows all things and the one who has always existed and will always exist is small do you ever while you're driving in the car raise your hand if you ever as you're driving get an insect flying around or moving around inside your car maybe a a horse fly or a spider or a mosquito or a bee how many of you have ever had that experience many people here yes do you know how many people have died in car accidents because an insect in their car caused them to panic many people have died from that but if you really think about it it's really foolish to be more afraid of the insect than of losing control of your car it's foolish and potentially deadly and yet it happens a lot and this tells us something about who we are how easily we overreact to things and overestimate certain things and underestimate others The same thing is true about fearing man more than we fear God. Remember what Jesus said. My friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you fear him that's Luke 12 4 and 5 and that's not fear mongering that Jesus is doing here he is giving loving advice to his friends he begins my friends this is the what, what this is what you, how you should think three weeks from today we are going to begin a sermon series on the book of Revelation in the first chapter of Revelation John sees a vision of Jesus ready in heaven to return 
it says he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's verses 13 to 16 of Revelation 1. And that is the one we need to fear and to love. The baby in the manger really was bigger than the whole world. Though it wasn't so obvious at first. And it still isn't as obvious as it will be on that day when he is revealed and returns. But it's obvious enough. And that brings us to our final point, which is in verse 21. Where Isaiah asks, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He says, don't you get it? Isn't it obvious? Haven't you been told about this since the beginning? Haven't you always known about this deep inside? You see, there is in the heart of man a tendency to be oblivious to the truth which is right before our eyes. Paul says we suppress the truth in Romans 1.18. The truth is there staring us in the face, but we don't like the truth. The thing people most need to know about in life is so distasteful to them that they'll stop at nothing to convince themselves it's not really there. It's not really true. They ignore it. They try to change it. They mock it. Whatever it takes. There's a part of us which wants to be oblivious. Isaiah was called to be a prophet in chapter 6. He was told that he would be prophesying to people with dull hearts. Heavy ears, blind eyes, who hear but don't understand, who see but don't perceive what verse 21 is talking about. It's possible to hear and yet refuse to get the... There is none so blind as he who will not see. God is the elephant in the room. Are we going to go out of our way to avoid him? Or are we going to fall on our knees and worship him? Let us pray. Lord, as Jesus said, blessed are our eyes that they see and our ears that they hear. For Lord, we know that flesh and blood has not revealed to us the reality that we so love and which is, in so, which is so important to us that you are God 
and that Jesus is the Savior. And that your word is contained in the scriptures. Thank you for sending him. Thank you that you loved us so much that you did not hold him back but gave him to us all. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to give yourself for us upon the cross. May we always treasure you. May you always be the delight of our hearts. May we always reverberate with joy when we remember that you are ours and we are yours. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of coming to the table to celebrate this great gift and this great love. Be with us now and feed us that we might be strong in the Lord as we go forth from this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.